This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. I wanted to do a, a quick paper um, that was actually posted by um, uh, Betsy Pilon, the founder of Hope uh, for HIE. I thought this was an interesting paper um, called Perceived Disability-Based Discrimination in Healthcare for Children with Medical Complexity. Uh, the lead author is Stephanie Ames, um, and it's in pediatrics. Um, so it, it's not necessarily in the neonatal population, but I still thought that there were some lessons we can take um, from it. Uh, there's also a thought-provoking commentary on the article in the same issue of pediatrics, if anybody's interested in looking at that. But basically what they did is they conducted these kind of semi-structured interviews with caregivers, caregivers of children with medical complexity and disability. Um uh, which they had recruited through national advocacy and research networks. The eligibility participants were parents and caregivers of a child with medical complexity who were at least one year old and reported a disability related to physical, cognitive, communication, and or social functioning. And the medical complexities were defined as having more than or equal to two organ systems affected and either tech dependency, functional impairment, or high healthcare resource utilization. And the surveys particularly were targeting um, caregivers that perceived that their child had experienced kind of discrimination in a healthcare setting because of their disability. What does that mean? Um, I mean, that's, that is a perception, right? But I think once you hear some of the quotes, you won't be surprised. No, no, I'm not but. questioning. I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering what that's, uh, what, yeah, I'm, I'll wait for the quotes because I'm, I'm, my, I guess my question is, what does that look like practically? Okay, I'll tell uh-huh. you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, in total, they had uh, 30 participants from four, from 15 states. Um, the majority of caregivers were female, 25 to 30. They ranged from tw- 26 to 55 years old. Um, the majority were married, 20 out of 30. And the children ranged from age 18 months to 18 years. And most caregivers reported that their children had greater than 20 healthcare encounters annually and were insured through Medicaid. So it sounds like a pretty medically complex group. But basically, you know, they kind of did this thematic analysis and they had these six major themes emerge to provide this kind of conceptual framework. So three major themes described drivers of discrimination and they included lack of clinician knowledge, clinician apathy, and clinician assumptions. And then three themes kind of described then what were basically the uh, consequences or the manifestations of discrimination. Um, and they uh, were limited access to care, substandard care, and uh, this term dehumanization. So I'll give you some examples mm-hmm. of these types of first kind of the drivers of discrimination. And I have selected some that I think are most pertinent maybe to our population, though they provide many more um, quotes. So things like uh, clinical knowledge. So what I, this quote, what I found is we got a lot of blanket statements about the non-viability of this diagnosis and the hopelessness around the diagnosis, but none of the providers actually knew what to do or to treat the diagnosis or knew much about the diagnosis. So they felt like the clinicians didn't really know, but once they decided it was a 
quote unquote non-viable or had a really high rate of disability that they would give these blanket statements about what, you know, like maybe non-escalation of care. And they had this other driver, clinician empathy for patients with disability. Um, And examples of that were, my perception is that clinicians wanted to take care of a patient that didn't have a severe special need. I don't know. Sometimes it seemed like they didn't even care to treat my daughter. They acted as if we were a waste of resources or um, they were gatekeeping. They were being influenced by their perception of disability or kids with this diagnosis. They act as gatekeepers and you're trying to do everything you can to knock that gate down. Hmm. They also mentioned some of these clinical assumptions. So assumptions about patient based on diagnosis or disability rather than individualized care. And the quote was, and because he doesn't make eye contact, part of the things that are a di- part of his syndrome, he's not a typical child that's going to look you in the eyes when you're talking to them. And so just because he wouldn't make eye contact, they assume that he's not verbal. Or if he doesn't make eye contact, they assume he doesn't understand what's going on or doesn't understand what's happening or what they're saying. And that's really not the case. There was also things um, about um, assumptions regarding quality of life. So I've had a few remarks made by my doctor, basically that it was inhumane for someone to be disabled and for you to support their life knowing that they're going to be disabled, which I can tell you right now, my daughter's disabled and she's literally the happiest one-year-old I've ever met in my life. She smiles and plays and interacts more than any one-year-old I've ever met. And then finally, a lot of times these clinicians are counseling you on these decisions and they see such a small piece of that person's life. They either only see them when they're in the hospital or when they've been at their sickest. And so they see them for just a short time. So I don't think it's necessarily with bad intent that they don't have a positive impression of disabilities or medical. And then they um, gave some uh, quotes about kind of the outcomes of these perceptions of of, uh, discrimination. So limited access to care. Um, a lot of these were being made to feel unwelcome in medical practice, like an outpatient clinic. So I won't touch on the, that too much. Um, but, uh, a, a lot of them were like inappropriate treatment of pain. So the most common thing we face is, uh, the disbelief of medical professionals, uh, medical professionals about pain. Um, another thing, I think the assumption is pain looks like the baby will pull away. Pain looks like they'll cry. Pain looks like that. So they assume if you don't respond to pain that way, but I know it's still painful to her and it's still aversive, some of the things that they're doing. And this uh, worry about dehumanization. So uh, the doctors treat her like she's a a vegetable or that she's invisible. Um, They give inappropriate comments to caregivers. The doctor once told me, well, you can read to your baby if it makes you feel better, but she's not really learning and she's not really responding. She responds like a dog. That's literally what he said. Those Whoa. were his words. And finally, they mistreated her, treated her like a robot. Every time someone walked in, they treated her like she wasn't even there. So anyways, obviously, you get it. You get it. You see what we're saying. Um, we know that we have wonderful, empathic, providers in our neonatal community, but I think our words matter. And I think these 
feelings of discrimination against disability happen already in the NICU. And I, I think there's this perception that we can't be honest with parents. Um, but I think we could do both. I think we could be honest without discriminating against disability. And they do underscore, obviously, that there are a lot of other ways, other forms of discrimination and inequities in healthcare, like um, racial, uh, socioeconomic, and cultural uh, and language barriers. But obviously, these are multiplied if you have one of those other, um, you know, reasons for inequity and there's disability. They felt like they were even magnified, mm-hmm. cumulative. So it's just it's just a reminder that our words matter. It's beyond that. I think it's it's just, I I think it's not just a poor choice of words. Sometimes it seems like I don't. Well, I, I don't think know. some of these are some of these are beliefs, right? And I think it fits perfectly with your first paper. That yeah, but I also wonder if the issue with the with the the, the cases that you're presenting is that as medicine has evolved, going back to something that we discussed with Satyan, right? Where everything has such become like such a, we've become such like, uh, like employees at the cash register. Like it's like we, mm-hmm. we, we bill and we do something for a purpose. Like it seems like the humanity and the care that's supposed to be provided in the comp- in the context of a doctor's office of a hospital is being lost. Cause it's like, well, what am I doing here? You know, like if it's like, right. And you can still as a, pro, as a physician yeah. provide care and humanity and that somehow as comp- it seems like it's completely disappeared. And so, sure. well, uh, I mean, we reviewed that paper that basically as your, as your scores for like moral distress and burnout increase, your empathy decreases. You yeah. just don't have the bandwidth to. It's interesting to when I was, when I was at AI Med with uh, with Rooney, um, one of the people who spoke as a keynote speaker was Robert Groves, who's I'm not sure he's a he has a podcast. He he's a he's a physician, but he was talking about like the the the, the experience that made him decide to go into medicine. And that it was like when he was following his father one morning and he was doing like a house call and he went to the house of like someone who was struggling with alcoholism and basically like his dad basically sat on the floor with him and like put his arm around his shoulder, waited for like 30 minutes and then drove him to rehab. And and that this interaction was like the moment mm-hmm. it's like, all right, I want to go into mm-hmm. medicine. And I feel like the paper you 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 presented is showing a complete lack of this aspect of care where no medications was being given, no medical intervention really happened, but just this this human connection and this saying like, all right, we have to be here for another person is completely lost. And that's very frightening if that's a if that's more than just a report and that's actually representing a trend, then that would be very, very concerning. Well, I think you're exactly right. I think sometimes what we do, what we always have to offer families is connection mm-hmm. and empathy and the and and um like this concept of bearing witness that their mm-hmm. kid is important you know i think especially in the nicu where some of our babies don't ever leave the nicu and yeah. we're some of the only people that ever know them you mm-hmm. know um it's a good point. i think that's just so valuable for our families Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.